If you want to pump your body and expand your mind, there's only one place to go. Mind Pump. Mind Pump. With your hosts, Sal Stefano, Adam Schaefer, and Justin Andrews. God, one of my favorite things about what we do is being uh, completely shocked and blown away yeah. by, by meeting somebody that I had completely different ideas on in terms of what I thought the, the interview would go, for example. What, what a great interview. I mean, Sanjay Rawal, you're about to listen to us talk to him. Um, you know, he's, he's a documentary filmmaker. Uh, he's done, you know, directed Food Chains, Challenging Possibility. And the most recent one, the reason why we have him on the show, he directed a film called 3100 Run and Become, uh, which is about this insane long distance uh, race where people literally run around a half city block in New York City for 3,100 miles over the course of, I think, 50 days. Um, and so we thought we were going to talk all about just kind of endurance running and whatnot. And we did some of that, but boy, did this episode uh, really surprise us. I mean, the, the history of this guy, he fought, he was a follower of Sri Chinmoy. And if you don't know who he is, uh, it was a, a spiritual leader who, um, you know, I think he was uh, almost got the Nobel Peace Prize at one point. Um, and through following this, uh, this leader, he met Mother Teresa, Bill Pearl, Frank Zane, uh, Pope John Paul, Desmond Tutu, I mean, you name it. And um, the, the teachings that Sri Chinmoy uh, taught him had a lot to do with spirituality, but also how it's combined with physical exertion and how the physicality of athleticism, um, there's a strong spiritual component, which totally resonated mm -hmm. with us. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, when I lift weights and work out and I've been doing it for so long, I definitely understand what he's talking about when he, he brings that up. Um, and so there was a lot of uh, really great information and just inspiring information yeah, and conversation. Yeah, I was going to say inspiring. And, and I, we haven't met a whole lot of people that have really had that kind of like impact of inspiration. When you listen to his stories, it's just you can't help it, man. You just like are compelled by what he has to say about it. Yeah, you got to check out the documentary 3100 Run and Become. It's, it's a great documentary. Uh, it talks about some of the histories of of running the different cultures from hunter-gatherers to Native Americans and, of course, to uh, some of these, these races that we do in the U.S. Um, very well made. Um, I, I, they have their Instagram page is at 3100film. And then, of course, the documentary can be found on iTunes and Amazon. Uh, we highly suggest you check it out. We know you're going to love this interview. Probably one of my favorite interviews I've done uh, in a long time. That's I how actually, much I, I actually it. Uh, rented it on YouTube for I think three ninety nine or four ninety nine. <laughs> so you can also get it on the YouTube. So if you guys subscribe to the uh, YouTube, you can do it that way. That's right. Um, now, before we get into the interview, I want to remind everybody that Maps Aesthetic is fifty percent off. It's still half off. You got to go to Maps Black. Uh, excuse me, MapsFitnessProducts.com or MapsBlack.com. Either either site, and use the code Black fifty B L A C K. Five zero for that fifty percent off discount. Now, also on the site mapsfitnessproducts.com, you can look at our other maps programs, and many of them they're all designed for different goals, different uh, athletic uh, backgrounds or fitness backgrounds from beginner to advanced. Make sure you go check those out. And that's it, man. Again, one of my favorite interviews. We know you're going to enjoy this. Uh, here we are interviewing Sanjay Rawal. Where'd you come from, by the way? How'd you, how'd you get here? Where, where are you coming from? I live in Queens, but my parents live in Oakland, San Leandro. Oh, so you're close. I grew up. And so I, I just nice. you know, drove down here and uh, you know, surprised how much less traffic there is now than 20 years ago. Really? Weirdly enough. Like I used to work right by, uh, by um, I guess it used to be called Great America. Yeah. 
And I would have to leave at like seven in the morning to oh, get there 101? like nine forty five. You know, it was crazy. Yeah, it's, I'm surprised you didn't run into a lot of traffic because I feel like it's gotten worse. I know since I was. Everybody says that who doesn't live in New York. Oh, you guys, uh, yeah, you guys <laughs> are right. the worst. Yeah, it's like an hour to go eight miles. Is that how you got into running? You're like, yeah. screw this traffic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would be good. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I watched your, your film, uh, 3100, and I was just blown away by the, just by the whole thing. I want to know, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Like, what got you to the point of creating that film? What got you into... Oh, even before that, I have... Yeah. To, I want... I actually... You are the perfect person because uh, I think we're all very uneducated on the history of mm -hmm. marathon running and how that even came about. So I'd love for you to start there and just kind of educate our audience on the evolution of that, where that started, and then we can get to where you come into sure. the picture. You know, I'll bounce way, way, way back, and then we can, you know, we can we can pick that thread up later. But, you know, as, as part of the movie 3100 Run and Become, I spent some time in Botswana with hunters and gatherers. And the running that I saw there and the, the, the purpose of how they ran just blew me out of the water. And it put into context modern long-distance running. So even before the marathon was popularized, at the end of the 1800s, people would gather in Madison Square Garden in New York City to run for six days. And it was like a horse race. People would bet on who would win. Um, the marathon, of course, became really, really popular in the 70s when the New York City Marathon went from loops around Central Park to a five-borough run, which was in honor of America's 200th anniversary, the bicentennial, mm -hmm. in 1976. It blew up in the 80s and 90s. But then again, it's like marathoning pre-1980 was always counterculture. People would go like, as, as men, they'd go like, you're destroying yourselves. As women, they'd say like, you're never going to have babies if you do long distance running. All ridiculous things debunked by science. But it was in the 80s that that idea of doing multi-day races was revived again. Hmm. Um, Six-day races, 10-day races, and that eventually evolved into what's now the world's longest running race, the 3,100-mile uh, self-transcendence race. And it goes back to the principle of like taking the logistics out of these long-day runs, like the ones in Madison Square Garden. You know, people do run across the United States, um, but then you need your like aid trailer following you. You can't like just use the restroom on the side of a highway. So the multi-day races were staged around a loop. And so the 3,100-mile run is staged around a half-mile loop right in New York City. And so it requires people to do about 59 miles a day to finish within the 52-day window. It's the officially the longest certified race in the world. And it's, it's literally the same loop yeah. over and over and Just over again monotonous. every day. The variation is that you get to change directions every day. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. But it's, it's the idea of like getting into a flow state. You know, people who, who've run across the United States, if you start in San Francisco, you go over the Sierras, the Wasatch, the Rocky Mountains, and then it's like you could have a, a headwind all the way from mm -hmm. Denver to Columbus, Ohio. And you're worried about traffic, you're worried mm. about food. But when you take those logistics out and you put it on a half mile loop, then all of a sudden it's like with no traffic, people can get into this like effectively like a meditative state of mind. Mm -hmm. And you really connect with like what humans connected with 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 years ago. Well, the, the thing that I have communicated this on our show in the past and the thing that a lot, of, a lot of people I don't think realize is that 
as as animals, humans are actually quite terrible at most physical feats. We, we're not very strong. Even if you lift weights and train or whatever, compared to other animals, we're pretty weak. We don't jump high. We don't do much that's really good or really uh, spectacular in the animal kingdom, except for a couple things. One of them is we can throw with accuracy. And the other one is we can out trek pretty much almost any animal. I mean, a human compared to even a horse, we can out trek a horse. And so we're kind of evolved and built to be able to do these long, long distance uh, type, you know, events. And it, it, it fell out of favor. What brought it back? Obviously, we did this as hunter gatherers. What was it that got it out of favor, favor and what, what brought it back into our lives? You know, with, with some cultures, particularly ones that we consider indigenous, like, like Native Americans, um, particularly in the Southwest, with the Bushmen of the Kalahari, running never went out of favor. Because running was a spiritual activity. It's way like, of life, right? Yeah, it was a way of life. And in 3100, we have a Navajo character, as you know. We have mm-hmm. a Kalahari Bushman character. And we went and spent three weeks in the Kalahari Desert with Bushmen. Now, they don't practice running. To them, like the idea of like like training for sports to do sports doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. But they're natural runners. They grow up understanding that power doesn't come from calories, power comes from mother earth it comes from your bare feet on the earth they say when you when you run you breathe in father sky your feet are praying to mother earth and when you look back like you said sal like at the evolution of humans we had no advantages on the savanna you know we we could be outrun by anything but the two things that we could do is we could carry water most animals have to be around like watering holes and we because we're on two feet each breath we take isn't coupled to a breath. If you can mm. imagine a horse extending, you know, all four legs extend or a dog, that's when the lungs expand. And then when, when you push off the ground, the body collapses and you have to breathe out air. Here we could decouple. So we are aerobic machines, whereas big animals, they can sprint, but they can't go long distances. So with the Bushmen, we went on a hunt. And they said, look, this might take 24 hours or 48 hours because we, first of all, have to track things that are trying to run away from us. We have to be downwind. But then we have to gradually scare these animals away from the known watering holes. You know, after 24, 48 hours, we'll actually be able to catch them. Like They will not be able to run as fast as us. And the kicker is, like, I thought that that meant that they would have aerobic capacity. Mm -hmm. But there's always one fellow... um, who's there for the final chase. He's the guy who's incredibly fast and can do the final push and catch the animal and run faster than the animal in a depleted state. And we had one of those guys with us. In the movie, it was Gaolo. Mm. And we don't show this, but the guy had glutes that looked like two cantaloupes. Mm. I mean, the power that he had in his running blew apart the idea that I had that we as human beings were weak, slow runners. He actually out-accelerated an antelope in a depleted state and caught it by hand. Oh, oh shit. He didn't want to like... Destroy- you, got, you got to see this in person? Yeah, and it's, oh, it's wow. in the movie. Crazy. Like That's he, crazy. He didn't want to destroy it and have the blood everywhere because we had to go back like 12 hours and you know a bleeding animal would attract a lot of things that would want to eat us too. Um, so he caught it, you know, de- like immobilized it and somebody came and caught up with him and broke its neck. But we saw him literally chase this thing down by foot and in the movie, he gets smaller and smaller and smaller because our cameraman can't <laughs> run like him. Wow. But it, it, it showed that he had power. 
not not just uh, aerobic endurance. It's that it was that sprint speed at the very end. Yeah, and yeah, which and which you saw. It's like we almost didn't capture it because he took off like he saw tracks, he, and he felt the presence of an animal where we didn't. All of a sudden, this antelope jumped out from behind a bush. He took off and ended up wrestling it down with his mm. hands because by the time we caught him, he was on top of it. And you know, didn't use his knife, didn't use an arrow or anything. Well, now as somebody who's uh, been in these sports of running and been around them as long as you have, um, what do you think about the way that these ancestral runners run versus the ways that you know modern people tend to run? Because I notice a big difference when I watch videos. This is something that I'm fascinated by. But when I watch hunter gatherers on video hunting and running. They seem to run and they bound and they do it in kind of this effortless, perfect biomechanic kind of way. When I see modern, you know, uh, you know, Westerners run, it almost looks like they're, well, it looks like they hadn't started running until they got into their teens and 20s versus born and then you just start running. I, mean, I, I think this is the heart of your podcast, right? It's like, do you use athletics? Do you train to look better, to lose weight or to become a better person? And when you look at that last idea, like, do you run to become a better person? All of a sudden, the training just, it, it radically changes. Mm-hmm. Instead of trying to train for like, you know, the Boston Marathon this April, you start to think like, how can I run for the rest of my life? Right. How can I get something out of this the rest of my life? And I, I've, I've found through like looking at traditional runners, they get a lot more out of it than I do. Like they enjoy it more. Every time they go for like a workout, they wouldn't even consider it a workout. Every time like our Navajo character, Sean Martin, would go for his morning run, he was fully expecting that the run was going to make him a better person, mm. that it was going to add to his own personal transformation. It wasn't about the GPS watch. It wasn't about, you know, logging the miles or like looking at your splits or looking at like if you're working out your reps and poundage and that kind of thing. It was a totally different mindset. And he got more out of each workout than I ever, ever did. Wow, that's yeah. fat. Now, what is the spiritual connection to running? Can you explain that? Um, I, I do find that in pretty much most uh, major spiritual uh, practices, there's some kind of a, uh, a challenge or struggle that helps people bring people closer to their spiritual you know, goal, whether it be fasting or trekking or running in this case, what is the connection for you between this spiritual aspect and then the, the physical athletic you know, aspect of running? You know, the interesting thing is like, I, I moved from the East Bay um, to New York City in 1997 to study with an Indian spiritual teacher, Sri Chinmoy. And not many people moved to New York to try to find inner peace. And I was one of the crazy <laughs> ones that did. Um, How did you find him? What made you do that? You know, some of his students were teaching meditation classes at, 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 in Berkeley, where I went to school. And, you know, everything like that is um, a dime a dozen in Berkeley. But I felt that, you know, his philosophy was unique. It didn't dissociate the body from the spirit. And no, no harm, no foul. But a lot of spiritual practices, you know, it's like if you do anything, you just do yoga. But mm-hmm. it's like building physical strength isn't congruous with inner strength in, on some paths. But I always felt that was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And on his path, you know, he combined the two. And like when you look back at like ancient, like physical practices, like in Sparta and ancient Greece, you know, there was a lot of mental preparation. And you would say there was a lot of spiritual preparation to, you know, to work out and to go into battle, to go into to competition. In the 80s, Sri Chenmoy, as an Indian spiritual teacher, took up weightlifting. 
And he did so under the guise of folks like Bill Pearl. Yeah, I saw that, right? And Frank Zane, mm-hmm. like these guys that want people to think as meatheads, but like Frank has a master's degree in Buddhism. You know, so it's like some of these old time bodybuilders, it's like they understood that to reach peak performance, you needed to have a really strong inner life. It's like mm-hmm. basically to stand up to like Arnold's ribbing on stage, <laughs> not to collapse with your confidence. Like you need to be able to match it with your own inner confidence. So Sri Chinmay was the opposite of what I thought an Indian spiritual teacher would be. It's like he was into weightlifting, he mm-hmm. was into running, and he actually started the 3,100 mile race. He felt that sports ultimately wasn't just a metaphor for like running along the road of life, that by making your body strong in this modern day and age, that's the only way to make your heart strong. Mm. It's like you can't have a spiritual life unless you have a strong body. You can't just by having a strong body have a spiritual life, but they had to go hand in hand. And when I started doing the research for the movie 3100 Runner Become, I saw that like these great athletes I was meeting around the world um, who came from traditional backgrounds, including the Kenyans, the Ethiopians, they looked at running, and you can say this as training, they looked at running as a teacher, that their workout, their practice of this endeavor was going to make them better people. They looked at the actual activity as a prayer or as a ritual. So every step mattered. It wasn't just like there's a warm up and there's a this and there's a that, there's a cool down. Everything was a continuum. And lastly, they looked at it as a celebration of life where sports is community. It's like when you look at the great runners and anybody who trains well, they have training partners. And it's like that team aspect is so important to like becoming better at your sport and better as a human being. And that's where I see the nexus between, you know, the spirituality aspect that it's not just about like, you know, disappearing into yourself. Um, It's about looking at the activity as a teacher, as a celebration of life, as a prayer itself. It's it's funny you say that because uh, you know my favorite thing to do in terms of athletics, athletics if you, if you can even call it that is lifting weights. I like to work out weights, and people who like to lift weights and do it for decades will refer to things like the squat rack is my altar. This is my this is my meditation. This is my and I achieve much of what you're talking about kind of on accident through working out. I do it because I love doing it for the sake of doing it without even thinking about the the goal of, you know, building muscle or, or getting stronger. It is, and I've, I've said this to many people and sometimes people think I'm crazy. It's like, a, I feel like it's a spiritual thing for me at times when I'm in there working out on my own. And I, and I know people listening who've been working out for a long time can kind of identify with that. Why, why do you think it is that other spiritual teachers or practices would try to separate the physical from the spiritual? Why, why do you think they try to eschew that? And, and, and some of them will even uh, demonize it uh, to some extent. I mean, I, I, I don't want to criticize um, any, anything, any other path directly, but if you look at the continuum of spirituality, if you look back at like ancient India versus modern India, people don't think of modern India as the land of warriors. But like you talked about Gama, the wrestler. Yeah. Now, Gama was actually Indian. Oh, was he Indian? Okay. And he was in the 1800s, 1900s or so. But it's like, if you look back at Indian spiritual leaders like Krishna, Arjuna, these great epics of like, you know, light versus darkness, they took place on the battlefield, literally. So like spiritual warriors were also like outer warriors. Inner outer inner warriors were outer warriors and, and vice versa. Um, and that was three, 4,000 years ago. Even, even Buddha, who came after Krishna, he wasn't a warrior, but he was a prince. 
And so like growing up, it's like he was an expert in like the martial arts. To, to spread his message, he walked, you know, thousands of miles across India. Um, I don't know how and why that disappeared, but it definitely, it definitely did. And in this day and age, you know, we look at spirituality as something weak. But like when you guys were talking about like, you know, your, your achievements in, in lifting, the, the 3,100 mile race is called the self-transcendence 3,100 mile race. And the question is like, why is it called self-transcendence? What does mm. that mean? The founder, Sri Chinmoy, felt that by going beyond your own capacities, you get a deep sense of joy, which is spiritual. It's like, that's progress. And weightlifting for him was an incredible example of that, where if you did a little bit more than you did a month ago, it's like the, um, the gains, it's like the amount of joy that you get from that, it's pure, it's constructive, and by definition, it can't be separated from the type, from the type of joy that you get from a contemplative practice. So he felt that those two things did go hand in hand. And it's, it's odd that that type of tool of feeling spirituality through your physical is not a part of other spiritual traditions when it's just as important as a contemplative meditative practice. Mm. Do you find um, people that are attracted to these types of events and races, what type of a person does this attract? Is it, you know, people that are really afflicted are, you know, addicted to substances are, you know, really going through like really hard times in life? Or is this something like, an, uh, they're, they're seeking something more meaningful that's, I mean, that's a great question. It's like, I think the people that have really understood the transformative properties of sports are people who have hit rock bottom. Um, and those are kind of the best examples where there's, there's a lot of ultra distance runners that, you know, can put up with the pain and you know, the outer pain because they've had worse pain inwardly. Mm-hmm. And in races, they can go like, this is nothing compared to what I've gone through. That said, it's like, you know, from an Eastern spiritual standpoint, like you don't need to go through suffering per se to achieve bliss. Like they don't have to go hand in hand. Uh, And so there's tons of other people who realize that, you know, running can take them to goals, even from um, a platform of of relative stability. Um, But the idea I think is the same, that you can make spiritual progress and transformative progress you know, through sports and through running. This is this is why uh, sometimes I'll rail against the the whole. I'm working out to achieve this particular goal. Like I just want to look this way, or I want to be able to run this fast, or I want to be able to lift this much weight. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but only focusing on that, I believe, negates all of the wisdom that comes from the the, the journey, which I believe to be the most important aspect of it. It's the it's not the I finished the race. It's the journey along the race that I think you gain the most. Well, you made a from. statement, Sal, where you're talking about how it's like your church or altar. And I, I think that you represent a minority in the in the weightlifting world. And we talk about this on the show a lot, which I know you know that, you know, you should work out because you love yourself, not because you hate your body. Now, I, I'm curious because when we look at when we look at the landscape of bodybuilding or working out inside a gym, I, I would say that uh, unfortunately, a majority of the people in the gym are uh, doing it for the wrong reasons. They're punishing themselves. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. They're they're punishing themselves because they don't like who they are. They don't like the way their body is, or whatever it may be. And that's part of our mission on our show is to try and help people make a better connection, a better relationship with exercise. What do you see when you look at the landscape of ultra marathon running and running? Do you see something similar that 
you know, few people really get it and understand the purpose behind it? Or do you think a majority of all of them are doing it for the, the right purposes? You know, that, that that's a great question. It's, it's one of the reasons why we, we made the movie 3100 Run and Become. It's because a lot of us in life will do things and have like a moment of spirituality or a moment of joy and not necessarily realize there's long traditions of looking at sports as a spiritual practice. Um, you know, for thousands of years in the West, we haven't used running as a spiritual practice, but the mm-hmm. Navajos still do. You know, a bunch of indigenous cultures still do. And by making a movie that shared that kind of language, that again, like for the Navajo running, when you run on Mother Earth, your feet are praying to Mother Earth. You're, you're breathing in Father Sky. It's like giving people the kind of language of spirituality around a common physical pursuit, I think helps people not only understand the, the experiences that they might have had in life, but also makes them understand that there's a way to use running as a religion, that mm. you know people have mm-hmm. used it as a religion for thousands of years. And by studying those different examples, you know you can look at running as a, as, a, as, a, as a different type of tool. You know, in terms of like a great example in, in the bodybuilding world, Frank Zane, I believe it was in the 1977, um, um, uh, you know, lead up to the Mr. Universe, he, he told himself that if I chant my spiritual mantra, my incantation, my meditation incantation a million times, it doesn't matter how hard anybody else trains in these three months, I'm going to win. And so he went and basically locked himself into like a, a gym garage in Florida for three months, you know, worked out like a madman, but chanted his mantra like a madman and when he showed up on the stage, and this is like the only competition that Arnold lost. It's the only one of the, and Arnold talks about this. This is one of the few competitions he ever lost, and he lost to Frank Zane. And Arnold was like, what, 6'3", six, 6'4"? Six, Frank Zane might have been pushing 5'6", five, 5'7". Yeah. Five, yeah, he outweighed Zane by, I don't know, 70 pounds. It was totally different. And so according to Zane, it's like the one advantage that he had over Arnold and anybody else was the power that this spiritual training brought him. Now, I can't explain it other other than that, but it's like... If you look at that advantage that spirituality allowed Frank Zane to beat Arnold in his prime, you go, okay, there's something real here, and it's definitely worth exploring. Yeah, I think we've interviewed enough high-level, top-level athletes and and, and coaches, and when you ask them what separates the best from everyone else, because at that level, you're—I mean, when you're when you're when you're in the top one percent of one percent, everybody's amazing, but the people who beat everybody in that category. It's that they have that inner belief, that almost spiritual um, aspect of what they do. It's, it's, you know, we can label it as confidence, but it's almost beyond that. And it's, it's really interesting. What was it like following uh, Sri Chinmoy? What was that whole process? How did, how did you meet him? You, and, and, and what was that all like? Because he did, I mean, there was lots of meditation involved. This was like a whole, this was your whole life. It, it was like, look, it was, it was really difficult because I, I, I met him when I was a sophomore in college. And he, I, look, look, if you look at like a, him just being a teacher, he had rules. Like if you're gonna go become um, you know, a student of a great physicist, that person would say like, well, you're working in my lab for like 16 hours a day. And it's like, that's your life, nothing else. And if you didn't like the rules of that professor, you could go find someone else. So he said like, you know, if you wanna like follow my path and get the kind of like inner gains that I can give you, and, you know, understand the depth of like universal love and universal peace, which are things that, you know, I was interested in. You have to do three things or you have to abstain from three things. 
which are, are not an issue at all, you know, in terms of life, but it's like on my path, it's built around abstinence, like no physical relationships, you know, no drinking, no eating meat, no smoking. And so there's lots of spiritual paths where you can make a lot of progress, you know, by doing those things. But in terms of my path, it's like my philosophy is based around progress with, with, with these rules. And as a sophomore in college, you go Yeah, you're like, like a young man <laughs> full of testosterone. Yeah. And, and it's like, you know, I don't want to say things like in terms of like biblical terms of temptation, but it's like there are beautiful people in college and there are like no restrictions. Like you're no longer living under the roof of your parents. Um, so I was like, I can, let me try this for, for three months. And just, <laughs> and just like you yeah, said, Justin, goes. like I, I came off a breakup. So I was like, I can be abstinent for like a month. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and like, uh, I, can, I can be off meat for a month. And it's like, I don't really smoke because I ran. It's like I drink once a week and I can skip four weekends. And after that month, I was like, I actually feel a lot better about myself now. And again, this isn't for everybody. I'm not trying to like advocate a type of lifestyle, but it worked for me. Mm. And it's like, if you look at all of us at how many years we each search to find our own like, best routine to be the best person we can be like i was so lucky that i found that when i was 19 mm. i think the i think the message of abstinence uh in different forms doesn't have to be abstinence from all the things you said but i think that message is going to get more and more popular uh today because we have access to more and more things unlimited access to food pornography some people drugs some people money and I think that there's meaning that you find in abstinence. How what, did you did you so you left school to do this? Did you live with the, with this group, and how did that work? So I, I finished my two my my undergraduate, but then I said like, let me you know instead of going to graduate school, let me consider this as like an inner graduate school. Hmm. And so I moved to New York, and you know, Sri Chen and I lived in a rough and tumble neighborhood. We weren't living in Soho or like the West Village or someplace fancy. Because his idea was like, in order to really serve the world, you have to be a part of it. So we were living in a neighborhood that was effectively not that much more like affluent than like East Oakland mm. in the 90s. So it was rough and tumble. How did your parents, like you tell your parents, hey, hey, mom, dad, I'm not going to go to college anymore. I'm going to go live in, in this neighborhood and, and uh, live with this group of people. Yeah, they weren't happy because they, <laughs> they, they both had PhDs. They were both professors and stuff like that. Yeah, you were supposed to be a doctor, right? Yeah, I was like going to be the good Indian kid where a doctor, <laughs> seriously, programmer or lawyer or whatever. Um, but, you know, in my 20s, I, I traveled with them. So it's like I met Mother Teresa. He was great friends with oh, Mandela, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Gorbachev. He met with Pope John Paul. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so like I traveled around the world and you go like, how did that happen to me in my 20s? And at the same time, it's like he was really good friends with Bill Pearl. And so I got to spend a lot of time with Bill Pearl, Carl Lewis, Frank Zane, all these people that like, you know, I was much more interested in them than, mm. than the Desmond Tutus and Mandela's of the world. Um, and after that 10 years, you know, he passed away in 2007. You know, I realized that I, I became a fully formed person really by virtue of him being my teacher. You know, it's like one of the most important things. It's like if you find a really good mentor and it's like if you learn how to be obedient and like if you have clients, for example, the worst thing, the worst quality I would say is like they're disobedient. <laughs> it's like if they're coming to you to make progress and they don't want to listen to you, you go like, what can I do for you? Right. At the same time, it's like they're lucky to have coaches like you. And if they understand that, 
they're going to make more progress mm-hmm. than if they like try to read from a book. Well, this, so I, I love that you said the word obedience because I think sometimes there's a negative connotation to that. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you're just doing what someone mm-hmm. says. But oftentimes when you are learning from a good mentor, someone who has integrity and has your best intentions, you need to be obedient or you need to do what they say to experience what you need to experience to gain the wisdom. So it's like if I tell a client, do these things, and uh, and, and they're like, well, I don't know what it's going to do for me, but I'm going to do what you're saying. And oftentimes if people did, they would experience the benefits and the feelings, and then that became their teacher. That became what gave them their wisdom. And But it took them... That to have that faith first, that that obedience that you're talking about. You know, I I, I did a, um, a a long run with a bunch of Native Americans um, last March to kind of run from the Southwest to Bears Ears, like an, an, a, a national monument that was just stripped of its status. But a Hopi elder said, as as we were beginning one day's journey, which you know we were running 30, 40 miles, he said, "Find joy through exertion." <laughs> And that to me is exactly what you said. It's like, hmm. it's it's not mindless obedience. It's like you, maybe the first step is mindless obedience, but then you realize you've gotten joy from that obedience and that it's taken you a step further by listening to your mentor or your teacher. And when this Hopi elder has said, find joy through exertion, I realized like that's for me, that's like the key to athletics. Hmm. You can't just exert, but it's like, if you, if you can find happiness in that struggle, if you can find happiness and that extreme push to go beyond your boundaries, like that kind of unlocks a different sense of purpose. What do you think about uh, how modern life aims to make everything easy, easier and easier and how struggle is what we're constantly trying to remove from our lives and eliminate from our lives? I mean, I, I, that's why, you know, I love running because, you know, if you're trying to make progress, it's not a, a one, two, three month crash course, nor is it with, <laughs> with, 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 with your training. Um, you have to look at it in terms of like six, nine, 12 month cycles. Like on one of your recent programs, you talked about like how you can't just binge on weekends. You know, you have to look at a continuum and, you know, you have to understand that it's like nothing comes easy and there's no tips and tricks. And oftentimes the best examples of, of athletes were, you know, 2,500 years ago when they didn't have like workouts on YouTube, they didn't have like heart rate monitors they didn't have the kind of like ease that we've got now. Mm. It's interesting. My, my dad has uh, worked very, very hard for most of us. He grew up very poor um, in Sicily. And um, since the age of nine, he'd been working uh, and earning money, giving it to his parents. And then of course he, as he got older, earned it for himself. And um, you know, through those years of hard labor, he was unable to continue working at a relatively young age at the age of, I think he was 52 or 53, he developed a lot of arthritis in his back and his work was very manual. And he went through this period of almost depression because he had lost that that purpose of that work that he had done for so long, that struggle. It's like he was at home and he's like, okay, this is supposed to be great. I'm supposed to be relaxed. After about two weeks, he was like, yeah. I don't know what to do. And it's funny, they show... Uh, they show when people retire and mm-hmm. lose that that the that the, the the life expectancy drops considerably as a result of that. So I would love to hear. I want to hear more about. I mean, you got an opportunity to meet some amazing people when you name like the Bill Pearls, Nelson Mandela. You talk about Mother Teresa. Like who who made like the biggest impact on you that you got to meet? And do you have any cool stories of, of what that was like? You know, to be to be frank, and I think this also kind of refle- reflects how unusual Street Chinmoy's approach was. 
my favorite person was Bill Pearl. Mm. You know, Sri Chinmoy once said, and this is like, I'd, I'd read this before I, I'd, I'd even really become a student of his, that if Bill Pearl went into hospitals, he could cure people by touching them. I mean, it's hyperbole, but it's like the idea that it's like his body and physique and, you know, people of, the, of, that, of that caliber, they're so imbued with what in India we call prana, life energy, like there's a life force. And the, and the Greeks and, 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 and ancient Spartans talked about this too. It's like when the body gets close to the ideal of perfection, it develops this kind of magnetic spirit around it. You can call it confidence, but it's like another like engine of energy. And like when I first met him, even though he's like five foot eight, five foot nine, he might have been 70 years old, still working out every morning at 3 a.m. in his famous barn in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And it's like I was at this weightlifting exhibition and I was like kind of a helper in the in, in, in backstage. I came around a corner and I slammed right into him, right into him. And he was like, like I, it's like hitting an elephant. If you're like a dog, <laughs> the elephant's just going to look down at you and go like, are you OK? <laughs> and he said that to me. He's like, are you OK? It's like it was like hitting a brick wall. But the weird thing, and this sounds like woo-woo, but as I walked away, it's like I felt this like like magnetism. Transfer of energy. Yeah. Mm. And I was just like, oh my God, like this guy has something incredible. And I went and interviewed him for like a 28-minute film I did on 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 Street Chinway's weightlifting called Challenging Impossibility. I spent three or four hours with him. And I wouldn't have thought that someone classically, someone so like outwardly powerful, was also as in touch with his emotions and confident enough to express these emotions that you don't think of like of, as masculinity, of like mm-hmm. aggressiveness. Um, but again, it's like looking at an elephant, like an elephant walking through a market does not care what you think of it. It's like, <laughs> it'll do what it wants to. And it's like, you're going to live with it. And when I saw how, you know, like, like people like him and Frank Zane that were at the, like the, the, peak of testosterone, the peak of like physical development, that they were also incredibly in touch with their hearts. I realized like there is a way to like have an incredibly balanced life where you can have like the most focused, aggressive physical pursuit and not neglect the idea of like being happy. Mm-hmm. You you make films now and they seem to uh, come from something inside of you, like your purpose. How did you figure this out for yourself? How did you figure out that this was your purpose to do this? I, 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 it's, it's, a, it's kind of you, kind of you to put it in that, in that context. I think I came into it by accident. You know, I kind of, you know, bumbled around, you know, in my twenties, um, you know, doing some human rights stuff here and there. And then after reaching my past, like after your teacher leaves you, you know, you're kind of forced to, to, to like assimilate, Mm. what he or she taught you. And being with him was like a whirlwind. We were always flying around. You're always meeting people. And I never really like had the time or the presence in my 20s to sit back and go like, oh my God, I just spent an afternoon with Desmond Tutu. Oh my God, we just met Mother Teresa. It was just like, oh, that's cool. Like, (laughs) who's next? Um, So it was in my 30s, I stepped back and said like, you know, I've had so many opportunities to come in contact with stories that I think a lot of people haven't heard. And like, maybe I can be of service to people um, by telling stories that are inspirational. That I mean, there's, there's, there's plenty of great stories that talk about like the difficulties of human life and like the unusual aspects of like war or culture. 
but I had the opportunity to like approach life just through the lens of inspiration. And we all know the importance of like being inspired. And so I figured like I can make movies like that. So my first movies were on surfing, on weightlifting. Then I did one on farm workers, which again was about this small group of farm workers that were like fighting Walmart, fighting these gigantic corporations Mm -hmm. and overcoming them just through their discipline and through their inner focus on like a goal. And then I made 3100 Run and Become, um, which I felt kind of combined everything. As, As you know, there's a human rights aspect because the Kalahari Bushmen, as one of the most ancient cultures in the world, are, um, you know, the victims of a genocide. Like, the government in Botswana does not want them to exist. They do not want them to hunt and gather and to, to require thousands of acres to live on because the land which they're living on now, it's been discovered, has a ton of mineral potential. Um, and so it's, it's terrible, it's right? Terrible. The, the government told them, you can't hunt anymore, but don't worry, we'll just give you guys rations. Literally becoming dependent on government, which is unbelievable. It's the same thing that happened here. It's like when Native Americans were pushed to reservations, they were moved off their ancestral hunting grounds where they ran and they hunted. Um, and some were agriculturalists, but the first thing that happened was they were separated from their food. And so the government said, like, we will give you food as part of treaties. You know, it's flour, it's sugar, it's coffee, <laughs> alcohol, it's alcohol, mm-hmm. it's oil bad oils. And so that's how the modern food system rose because corporate entities realized that people were becoming addicted on the reservations to these effectively military rations. And that's how the food industrial complex got built here. But in Botswana, it's the same way. They say, like, if we see you hunting, you know, we have the right to shoot you and to kill you wow. as, a, as a way to really deter these ancient practices. Wow. Insane. Now, now, speaking about the food, I, I have a question. Just, It's interesting to me that a, a lot of what we're talking about is evolved from these uh, hunter-gatherer type tribes, and that's where this all first stemmed from. What is, and they're hunting animals. What is the purpose of abstaining from meat? And why is that a common practice now? And I have friends like Rich Roll, I know he's a, a vegan. I'm assuming you are. I think you mentioned that too. Like, what is the purpose of being vegan if it evolved from something where we're chasing down meat and killing it? You know, you know I, I look at this as, as two ways. Like one from the more esoteric side of things. Um, like if you are trying to lead a really calm life, and especially at the beginning, you know, where you kind of need to take advantage of like every tip and every trick. And this isn't, this isn't accurate for everybody, but as a kind of common starting place for spirituality, like when you eat things that are aggressive, like animals, you, you imbue those qualities in you, which can be incredibly effective for, for sports. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying this is like any hard and fast rule. I'm going to start eating some lion meat pretty soon. <laughs> You're selling there me you on go. it. There you go. There you it's going to go over well, so. so Sorry. <laughs> but but it, it was like like some athletes in the old days, it's like before their competitions, they would eat a heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, and, and it's like, it's not just for the nutrition. It's for like, you know, the, the, the feeling you get from eating something's heart. Like you imbue that quality. Mm. And again, I'm not judging, but when you're trying to spend long hours, you know, in contemplation, it's like when you're eating a softer diet, like vegetables. Interesting. It's it's adequate for that. And so I, I don't come at it from, you know, I hate to say this, but I don't come at it from an environmental standpoint. Mm. I don't come at it from like, this is the way to live as humans. It's like, it depends on what activity you do. If you're like digging ditches all day, especially in the 70s and 80s when there wasn't like sources of vegan protein. Mm-hmm. It's like if you weren't eating meat, you could not do your job. Um, but then again, it's like Bill Pearl became a vegetarian, I think, in 1956. Yeah, he, he was a bodybuilder vegan. 
I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. That's interesting. Now, was he pure vegan or was he... He, a, he was a vegetarian. Like, so he ate dairy... Yeah, and if you have conversations with him now, like he will, he he will not stop eating cheese. He will not stop eating milk because it, it's not about environment for him. It's like he wanted a cleaner, more digestible mm. source of protein, and he found personally that when he shifted from animal proteins to or, or or meat, I should say, to like you know to soy to like you know just smooth dairy proteins. He could digest it and he could make gains faster. Ar- Arnold writes about Beryl Pearl. I, I read uh, an article where, that, where Arnold was talking about Beryl Pearl and he says Beryl Pearl convinced him that a bodybuilder could be vegetarian. And Bill Pearl was a, I mean, very strong, muscular, uh, there he is, bodybuilder. A- of his time, he was considered the mass monster back in those days. And remember, in those days, they used oftentimes were either natural or if they did use anabolics, it was like an insanely low dose, like five milligrams of of D ball or something like that a day. And if you look at so if you're listening, you can look up Bill Pearl and see what I'm talking about. He looks kind of like a, a, a John Cena. Yeah, just Jack. Yeah, oh, he, he does. does a little and bit, very right? strong, one of the stronger bodybuilders uh, uh, of all time, especially in that context. I mean, it was like you guys were talking about in, in early bodybuilding um, competitions, you'd have to do a feat of strength. So mm-hmm. like he could tear license plates. He could like blow up hot water bottles with his mouth and burst them. But what, but when it comes to diet, it's like I, I actually think that being a vegetarian in the 90s, I'm 44 right now, had saved me from a lot of health problems because mm. like there was no such thing as grass fed beef or like free range chicken. Sure. Like when we grew up in the 80s and 90s and 70s, even it's like the stuff you were taking had so many chemicals and we didn't even we didn't even know nobody cared but like now it's like you can get really pure meat you can get things that don't have the chemicals and the side effects of like the 60s and 70s protein heavy meat diet so again it's like for me it, it's it's kind of come from like a spiritual perspective but that said it's like I've spent a lot of time with 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 Native Americans and with indigenous around the world where certain types of meat are things that they worship. Like, you know, mm. the, the salmon tribes up in Northern California and in Washington state, like they think that salmon or they believe that salmon was given to them by the creator. Mm. And so if you're with them and you don't eat salmon, it'll be like me saying, Adam, would you like a glass of water? And you go like, I don't drink. I'm like, no, it's, do you want a glass of water? No, I, I don't drink liquid. <laughs> I, they go like, how do you survive? <laughs> so I've definitely been with people who would be like, you don't eat salmon? How do you survive? And when we were with the Bushmen, and, you know, we chased this animal down, you know, for their food and for the film, you know, and they gave us some afterwards. I wasn't going to say like, no way, man, I don't eat meat. It's like there was a spiritual aspect sure, right. of that exchange. Right. And so like, I don't have the capacity myself to like, you know, make every single meal spiritually focused. Um, and I find it easier with my lack of discipline and consciousness that if I eat vegetarian, I'm able to keep that kind of like spiritual balance. Mm. But I know plenty of people historically, spiritual giants like Jesus ate meat, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, there's no one size fits all. I, 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 I firmly believe uh, respecting and valuing your food. And even if it comes in the form of, of spirituality is far better than what most people do with food, which is, it is not only just an afterthought. It's just, I'm eating this for taste and there's literally no value, no respect given to their food. So when you see people who, who who look at food as something that is either spiritual or something to respect, the quality of food that they eat, and they put thought into it. That's the thing. Most people put zero thought into what goes into their mouth. I wanted to ask you about the the current health of the uh, of the Bushmen now, because I know in, in America, 
Native Americans now suffer some of the worst, uh, you know, rates of diabetes. And maybe, you know, one of the theories is that they were hunter gatherers for so long that they, and then we switched them to this, you know, heavy grain, sugar and alcohol, you know, Western diet. And I think it's like in some tribes, uh, it's like 50 or 60 or even higher percent have diabetes. Are the Bushmen suffering from terrible health now as well? This is the difficult thing, I think, about where we are in terms of diet. Like diet is so based on your genetics. I mean, if you think about Darwin and like the adaptation and survival of the fittest, you know, if you could not eat the foods that were around you, you were dead. Like if you were born as an Inuit tribes person up in Alaska and you couldn't like digest and process heavy amounts of fat, you were dead. Um, I'm from East India. Um, my dad's from the North. My mom is from the South. So at least I know the two places in the world where I'm from. Um, I've done research on the way their diet was 150, 200 years ago. And it's so different from how I eat now. Mm. But it's where my genes are from. And for people that come from a European background, you don't always know whether you're 100% Sicilian, mm-hmm. whether you know, you're half Irish, half German. But until we know the basis of where our genetics come from, we're just guessing. Yeah. At the same time, like in this day and age, if you cannot survive on a McDonald's high sugar diet for the first 12 years of your life, you're dead, mm-hmm. right? Because that's all we eat as kids. Like that's what you're attracted to. And at the same time, like none of us are eating that ancestral diet. We're all eating from supermarkets. We're all eating the same stuff. And we have no idea if it's something that we're evolutionarily adapted to or not. And so, like you said, with the Native Americans, when they started getting diets that were so foreign to how their bodies and their physical genetics evolved over tens of thousands of years, there were certain things that their physical bodies had incredibly bad reactions to, like super high starch. You know, when we were with the Bushmen, I did not see them eating any carbohydrate mm-hmm. at all. You know, it's like they were eating stuff that was basically all from an animal. Mm-hmm. They were they were chewing on roots um, mainly to like to to like absorb the water that was in roots. They didn't have cassava. You know, even things like cassava all came from the New World. Um, but they were subsisting mainly on calories that they were getting from fat and protein. And, you know, like the these things that we don't think anybody can survive on. It's like a full-time keto diet. But like you guys have discussed, it's like they were genetically and evolutionary evolved to like do well on a keto diet. But if they got a whole bunch of carbohydrates, which they're getting right now, body goes bonkers. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing obesity grow like crazy there? Yeah. Oh, obesity, man. diabetes, all the things that come from a diet that your body is not genetically adapted to. So when I first heard about this race and um, I immediately thought we had Joe Decina on the show. Yeah. Right. Great storyteller had, had uh, all these like incredible um, races he was bringing up. And one of them that caught our attention was this thousand day race out in Japan. I wanted you to talk about that and kind of, you know, the similarities maybe between that and the 3,100. So this is crazy. I'm really glad you brought this up. Um, In a nutshell, once a generation, this small sect of Japanese monks in the highlands of Kyoto in this mountainous, you know, forested region, they'll pick one aspirant um, to do a thousand days of trekking. 
Uh, they're dressed in these robes. They look like Star Wars. It's like bamboo sandals, these long staffs, you know, long. You, you do know, listen to the show. Bamboo hats. <laughs> <Yeah>. I love it. <laughs> so they they have to do. People can put their math hat on. They have to split the thousand days into ten hundred day chunks, and those those thousand days are spread out over seven or eight years. So every year you do a hundred or two hundred days of trekking. Um, each day in each cycle has a set number of miles. So the first few cycles are 11 and a half miles a day. But by the time you get to the last one, it's 56 miles per day. This is the kicker, though. If you don't complete your daily mileage on any single day, you have to take your life. Oh, my. No big deal. No big deal. (laughs) They strap a a knife to to their body, right? Yeah, you have a a choice between a knife or stringing yourself up on a tree. Um, In the last 150 years, nobody has taken their life because they're a lot more selective on on who they choose to Mm. do it. But the idea is that if you're not ready for this at the starting line, you're going to have problems. And that's like the 3,100. It's like they say, like, how can you do 3,100 miles? How can you do 60 miles a day? Like, what about all the problems you're going to have? If you're not ready for that by the time you tow the line, you're toast. Um, and I think that's the similarity. It's the idea of really understanding that everything that's in front of you can be a problem and Every day can be the worst day of your life, or in the case of the Japanese, the last day of your life, <laughs> yeah. um, unless you understand that problems are only problems if you make them into those. Mm. So they haven't had anybody have to kill themselves since they've done that? So in, in 150 years, but they've been doing it for about almost 2,000 years. Um, there was somebody... So it's a 150-year win streak so far. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's like the, in factories, it's like, you know, the last injury was, or last de- celebrating 150 years of no death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. We must be very motivated to finish that the whole time. Well, like he said, I, I must, we, 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 got, we evolved and we got smarter. We stopped even attempting the race unless we had done some prerequisites right before. Make sure you could even finish a race What like are some that. of the commonalities you find in people that are drawn to these kinds of features? of athleticism like what do you see in common with the people that tend to do this you know like i have to be honest like they're a completely different breed of human than me it's like that they have an understanding of of pain in the way that i don't it's like like the pain tolerance is super super high but it's built up like people who do the 3100 don't just come in right they don't allow them to just like sign up and do it you have to have done a six-day race, a 10-day race, mm. um, and kind of built an understanding of what uh, what problems really are and realize, like, there's very few things that can kill you, really. It's like, you know, the miles won't kill you, you know, just but the little things will, like dehydration, lack of calories, blisters won't kill you, your feet aren't going to fall off, you know, if they're covered with blisters. It's just that you know, can you get enough joy out of an activity to counteract the suffering? It's crazy. Yeah, you because know, you can't do 52 days of running if every day is miserable. Yeah. You have to under, You have to figure out a way to get some bliss out Fine, of it. There peace. must be, like in the beginning, though, that must be the most difficult part, like uh, to overcome the mental aspect of how daunting it really is, right? I, th- I think that's the trick. And so it, it, it's like if people are going to go climb a Himalayan mountain, you know, you could be out like an Everest base camp for 10 weeks or if you're if you're climbing a gigantic ledge, you know, like in the movie Dawn Wall, uh, you know, you might spend 21 days like perched on El Capitan, like in a portal ledge. 
And can you handle like spooning with your like tent mate, you know, for <laughs> 21 days in a row? You know, like what happens in the tent stays in the tent. <laughs> like, can you can you withstand like on those things like pooping in a bag every single day? So with the 3100, it's like you're gonna have skin like no one's ever seen. It's like you're gonna have blisters, you're gonna have chafing, everything that could possibly go wrong on any type of run is gonna go wrong. You're gonna lose probably all your toenails. You're gonna have to do 52 miles, 59 miles on days when you know you have like stomach upset. Mm. Like, can you look at those problems as being as momentary as they actually are? Is it common to lose all your toenails from running? People do. Wow. People do. You wow. know, it's like, and you, you'll see in in the movie, like people will cut out the toe box of their shoe. They look like homeless people because the shoes are like they they cut big holes in them. All the areas that can traditionally like chafe, rub. Yeah, rub, you know, you don't feel it on a five mile run or a 10 mile run, but you know, you'll feel it after 300 miles. Wow. wow. Yeah. It, it makes a perfect sense that there's a spiritual component. When you read about um, people who survive some of the most horrific conditions, POWs, for example, the ones that tend to survive are the ones that uh, have a very strong spiritual component or religion that look at it on a, at a day by day basis. They're the ones that make it. It's never the people who are like, ah, this sucks every day. I mean, those, those are the best books. I think one of them is called like why they survive. Mm. Like all these stories of like people being stuck in a raft for like six months and like, you know, being with raft mates that freak out on the first two days and jump out and try to swim a thousand miles to shore mm. and get eaten. And so it is that attitude. It's like, do you have an understanding of how to get positive energy from the worst situations. Mm. And those are the people that thrive mm. in races like this. How do you feel about the the, the growing um, anti-spiritual, anti-religious, you know, kind of atheist uh, movement that we're seeing nowadays? Do you think that that's going to cause problems in the sense where people are going to have trouble uh, making it through very struggling, difficult times because they don't have that component. Uh, you know, I, 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 it, it does frighten me, and, and, I, and I, I would, I would look at it as, you know, people not having any sort of confidence in faith. You know, even, even stripping away the idea of religion um, from an Eastern standpoint. Like, if you have faith in something, if you're a Buddhist or if you're a Christian or if you have faith in physics you know, that faith strengthens my own spiritual practice. And so the difficult thing I have with this like atheistic agnostic view of life is that it strips meaning away from life. Mm. People become cynical to the point where they think of faith as weakness. But it's like, if you look at Frank Zane and, and his like, you know, defeat of Arnold, he had more faith than Arnold. It's like he had faith in himself because he achieved his, his goal of chanting that mantra a million times. Like, Faith is a muscle. At the same time, you know, that combined energy of global faith will help anybody who wants to tap into it. So I I look at like this idea of faith as weakness as being one of the kind of like core problems in society right now. I would agree. I I, we interviewed uh, Bishop Barron a while ago and he put it so well um, where he explained, you know, this is something that helps us find meaning and purpose. And when you eliminate that, you still feel like you need to fill that hole and you end up filling it with uh, money or power or sex or drugs. Um, and it, it's impossible to fill that purpose and meaning with that. And you end up becoming anxious, depressed and, and severely nihilistic. And the evidence is in all the celebrities that tend to commit suicide. Here's pe- people with all the money and power and access 
in the world and they're so miserable that they take their own lives. I mean, I, th- I think cynics and critics in, in general, and I'm not saying this as a profession, but cynics and critics are like, they, <clears throat> they've succumbed to failure. They've failed at something and they don't think that they can ever go beyond it. And so like the idea, like, you know, when you're in the gym and there's somebody that you can tell has worked out for like 20 seconds, mm-hmm. but they're super positive and they're super excited. You, I look at them and go like, I want what they have as opposed from the guy in the corner that's just like lifting massive amounts of weights, but is miserable. Mm. It's like that enthusiasm. It's like, that's what I want in mm. my life. You keep it. The, uh, on the race, you call it the transcendence race. Um, are there any like amazing stories of, you know, somebody going through this race, this process, and then it completely changing their life? Uh, that's a great question. I'll tell you one story that scares me. So there, there was a, a guy um, named Yuri Trostenyuk, um, a Ukrainian runner, who three or four years ago when he was running this race, he said that he saw angels. And, it, wow. you know, a lot of people, myself included, who have run like ultra distance races, you get to a mindset where you actually literally start hallucinating and you're not <laughs> seeing angels. You, you know, you're just like seeing stuff that's like you think you're seeing. And so when Yuri said, like, I'm, I saw angels, you go like, nah, you know, okay, whatever. Um, but it was such a powerful experience for him that after he finished the race, he stayed in New York for the next three or four weeks and every morning went out and ran 30 or 40 miles on the course because he was still living. In addition to after the race? Yeah. Wow. wow. That's why it, it freaks me <laughs> like out. Like wanting, wanting to see him again? Is well, because yeah. to him, it's like the, their presence was still there. It wasn't just like he saw them for a moment, like, uh-huh. like he made it sound. He felt the presence mm-hmm. of angels there. And it was something that he knew that if he just kept going back there, he would still feel that presence. And he was so enamored and like so filled with joy from that experience that he kept going out doing 20, 30 miles a day. And it freaked me out because I would see him just, the race is over and he's still out there running. You go like, he's not doing it for anything other than spiritual purposes. It it still freaks me out. Like I don't have a, a, a... uh, I, I don't have any way to identify with that. Yeah, I did not. That's I did amazing. not anticipate to be this inspired to go work out from from talking with you. I, know. <laughs> I like want to go work out so bad now. You know what I mean? You're like team no sweat. And yeah. now I'm like, I'm going to start running. So <laughs> I, on the on your, your your film, it said that they the people who do this race, this 3100 uh, mile race have to consume something like 10,000 calories a day. How, yeah. do, how do they do that? You know, what is that in the form of? Th- this this is the tricky thing, right? Like in modern science, people say that you can't when you're when you're doing aerobic exercise, you can't absorb more than four hundred or five hundred or six hundred calories at most per hour mm. uh, when your body is not focused on digestion. And so these athletes, they train with eating. It's like you have to be able to like get your body not just fat adapted, but able to like divert energy from like slow aerobic running to massive like inner fire to like digest heavy amounts of food. And so they have to take, you know, 12,000 calories a day across 18 hours. That's about 650, 660 calories per hour, which is- That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, that, that's What like, are they eating? So, th- so- there, Gotta be a lot of fluid, obviously. There's a lot of fluid. There's a, there's a full-time kitchen there that's providing- a few meals a day, but they're constantly providing food in like Dixie cups. Mm. And so it'll be like, you know, here's uh, an eight ounce shot basically of zucchini soup, but that probably has 300 calories from fat. Oh, wow. And so the, the, the difficult thing with this race 
is that you have to come into the 3100 like with a high BMI, like in terms of like body fat even. You got to have the energy yeah. store on you. Because they say the first three weeks of the race, you're burning fat. And then after those first three weeks, you're, you're pretty much down to, you know, four or 5% body fat. The next three weeks, you're burning carbohydrates. And inevitably, the last one or two weeks, you're burning muscle. Wow. And, and so you start seeing people like across the race, you know, not just getting lean and shredded, but at the end, like losing weight. And they mm-hmm. have to get weighed every day um, to make sure that it's not water weight that they're losing. But diet there is so wacky and so critical. What kind of what kind of fats are they putting? Is it coconut oil? Is it bone broth? What are they putting in these? You know, like the 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 basic food that most people eat is vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Like people who do eat meat, like they'll have like you know another person kind of as a personal chef. But in this one kitchen that provides the race, it's all super clean burning avocados, um, coconut oil, ghee, clarified mm-hmm. butter, mm-hmm. Um, a lot of easy to digest sources of protein. But everybody's on their own diet. Like mm-hmm. some people will say like, no tofu, no wheat, no gluten, no this, no that. Mm-hmm. But people tend to eat, I would say 60 to 70% of their calories from fat, probably 20 to 30 from carb- from carbohydrates. Um, and maybe 10 to 15% from protein at most. But then again, it's like if you're taking 12,000 calories. It's still a lot of protein. Yeah, you're looking at 300 grams of protein if you're looking at 10%. Wow. And when you're trying to consume that many calories, it only makes sense that you're going to be consuming a lot of fat because it's dense. Otherwise, you have to consume a lot of volume. And at the same time, like your, your metabolism is churning so heavily 24 hours a day that most people find that if they want to try to get five solid hours of sleep, they have to eat about 2,500, 3,000 calories right before bed. Mm. Otherwise, they'll wake up at two in the morning starving. Wow. Oh, wow. Now, what about going to the bathroom? Are they using the bathroom more frequently because of all the calories they're consuming or less because they're burning so much? Like, Or do they have t- terrible digestive issues? That That's a trick. It's like you have to be able to like have you, – you have to train your digestive system not to have problems. And you have to know what you can eat, how you can eat. Um, there's, you know, there's porta potties up, you know, there. But the the difficult thing is the combination of fluid and eating, because you have to be drinking. It, and I mean, New York City in the summer gets to be 95. That's the degrees. other thing. This is done in the summertime. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And with with humidity, the real feel is like 104, 110 oh, degrees. Yeah. And so it's like you're not only taking 600 calories per hour, but you have to drink probably a quart of fluids. And like, imagine that in your gut. <laughs> so that's a tricky thing. The first couple of days for any runner are you're, you're plagued. Yeah, you're plagued with every single issue you can possibly think of. Well, mm-hmm. um, and and sleep wise, how are they sleeping more than the typical eight hours? Uh, they're they're between anywhere between four and a half and six hours. So not why so little? You know, it's like I I I've, I've found this through doing like you know six day races that. You like when you go to sleep at night in those races, it feels like you're laying in a bag of broken glass. (laughs) And you realize like you recover through circulation. Like you're recovering. Oh, so you feel all the pain because you stop. Yeah. You feel pain everywhere. And so the first couple of hours every morning on the course, everybody is like doing a long extended warm up, but they're only taking like 10 and 15 minute breaks during the day. It's like your, your mind doesn't need sleep. You know, it's like your body needs rest, but the rest happens from changing your pace. It doesn't happen from stopping. Oh, wow. Like when you stop, the lactic acid is no longer flushed. It's like all of a sudden the inflammation, 
you know, just explodes because you're not getting oh, circulation. Yeah. Mm. And so nights, nights can be rough. Mm. Yeah. What about um, any supplements or anything that seem to benefit these these real long extended forms of, uh, you know, sport? You know, it's tricky because our main character in, in the movie 3100 Runner Become is a Finnish paper boy um, who's now done the race 14 times. Oh, my God. So he's wow. raced more than 53,000 miles, including some other races, on the streets and parks of New York City. He says, like, he says water is boring. So if, if it's up to him, like, he would drink Coke and Fanta all day long. <laughs> if it was up to him, he would eat cheesecake. Again, high fat, high carbohydrate. He would eat cheesecake and pizza all day long. And, and he does. Um, and he says, like, yeah, he takes vitamins, but he takes about 1,000 milligrams of calcium 500 milligrams of magnesium, and that's it. Like he says, like for him, the nutrition doesn't mean anything. Whereas other runners are taking 50, 60 different types of things. But for him, he says, like if you don't have the mindset, none of the nutrition is going to help. At the end, it's like it's calories in because your body that's is the most important thing. That's the priority. And it's burning at such a high rate that it's like calories in, you know, a basic spectrum of vitamins. But it's much more about being adapted to what you're mm-hmm. eating and and what you have and don't have than trying to like fix it with supplements. Mm. You you said you you've done quite a few of these long six day races yourself. I've I've done a handful. I've had I've had enough experience of the pain. Now, how is your training currently? Do you still do lots of running? It's it's part of your spiritual practice, right? You know, so the, like the worst thing for training is travel. Right. And so like, you know, we opened the movie in theaters last August. So between August and January of of this year, 2019, everything was bonkers, Mm. everything. But then it's like I told myself, like, I have to like, you know, get back into things. So I went and got a new coach, um, a woman named Patty Catalano, Patty Dillon, who from 1977 to 1984 as, as a as a female runner held every single American record between the 10K and the marathon. She was Nike's first sponsored athlete, but nobody knows about her because until the 1984 Olympics, there wasn't a, a, a meddling event for women above uh, 3,000 meters, mm-hmm. which is slightly less than two miles. I mean, the men had you know the 5K, the 10K, the marathon, but people felt that if women ran long distances, they would never be able to give birth. And all these absolutely ludicrous, you know, um, theories. Um, and what's crazy too, is when you look at sports, uh, in some, in in many categories, men will outperform women, outperform women. But when it comes to distance sports, the longer the distance becomes, the more equal that we become. And in fact, in some cases, uh, some people argue that women are actually better because of their ability to store more body fat. So in the 3100, and actually people also feel that women run with a, with a deeper sense of community. Um, and so people looked at, at the Boston Marathon in 2018. That was, you know, 25 degrees at the starting line, freezing rain. Everybody in, in, in good shape, you know, was hypothermic because they've got no body fat. A lot of the elite men dropped out, but like most of the elite women didn't. And the winner, Des Linden, actually stopped to help a training partner, you know, adjust something during the race. And so people say, like, you know, the, the women weren't necessarily running with the same kind of like single minded focus on their race. They were running with this idea that they were like a pack. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to like put it in a derivative term, but like like a, a pack of lionesses, mm-hmm. you know, all like feeding off of each other. And at the end, one would push to like win or to, to like make the kill. Um in the 3100, 
they usually get, you know, three to four women, eight to 10 men. But in general, maybe about 50% of the men finish, 75% of the women finish. Mm. Um, and those women do better. The, the winning women probably do better than, you know, 80% of the men. Yeah. Mm. Um, so yeah, the, a woman's a women's naturally store more body fat, which becomes a major advantage in these very, very long distance competitions. And you see it as well with like the English Channel. It's mm -hmm. like with the English Channel, because you're swimming in 50 degree water, you know, you need to come in with 20, 30 pounds more weight. And so people generally like have to gain those 30 pounds to do the channel. And women are fantastic at the channel because of that high percentage of body fat and mm -hmm. the insulation. That's that's awesome. Yeah, it's funny. We, we, we joke about this all the time. You know, we're always trying to get so shredded. But if the shit hit the fan, it'd be the shredded people would be the ones <laughs> yeah. that would die first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you you talked earlier about when you you first decided that you weren't going to go off and, and be a doctor. We kind of just kind of glazed over that. I, I'd love to go back and hear what that challenge was like with your parents and you deciding, hey, I'm not going to go off to be a doctor. I'm going to go follow the spiritual guru. I mean, did did you? What happened with you and your parents? And how did they ever come full circle? How do they feel now? Like, you know, my my, my parents, they're 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 great. They had they definitely have come full circle, but they got a lot of crap from my relatives in India, who said like, "Why are you living in America if you're going to go follow an Indian spiritual teacher? Like, <laughs> you, you why aren't you making money? Yeah. Why aren't you like you know like having a big family and all these things that we think of as 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 the American dream." And my parents grew up in Indian villages in, 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 in East India. And it was education that took them out of the village and got them to America, got them to go to school here and to get good jobs. And they saw me as like throwing away everything. Like I had great parents when I'm gr I was growing up. Like I hated it, but like I was in Boy Scouts. I was swimming. I was playing soccer. I was playing basketball. I was running. I was playing baseball. Learn the saxophone, learn the flute. All yeah. these, but all those things you think of as like useless when you're a kid. And then when you're in your 30s and 40s, you go like, I got some skill. You know? <laughs> and so like they pushed me and all that. It's like I went to Cal and all of a sudden afterwards, I was like, you know, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to work in a health food store and I'm going to follow an Indian spiritual teacher and I'm going to become a vegetarian. And I don't know if you guys are ever going to have grandkids right now. I'm telling you, you're not. Um, and so my parents were just like, what? Your mom's crying. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> poor mom. And they were okay. But then it's like, you know, like for my cousins who, who are listening to this, they know that I was the smartest cousin growing up. And like <laughs> their parents are giving my parents crap because it's like those cousins were getting jobs at Microsoft. And like then they were like in hedge funds. And they're going like, what is your kid doing? You know, he's working 40 hours in a health food store. Well, he met Mother Teresa. And they go like, okay, whatever. But then by the by my 30s, like all my relatives and my parents saw that like I was happy. I, I didn't have I didn't have a mortgage. You know, I didn't have all these things that just like, you know, are, are part of like human responsibility that, you know, can drain you without the right attitude. Like I had this sense of freedom that all my cousins were like, dang, now I see why you're doing that. <laughs> That's awesome. It's the irony of it is you come to this. Uh, my parents are immigrants, also. You come to this country because of the opportunity, and part of that opportunity is the freedom to choose yeah. your own path. And that's exactly what you did. So my, my my dad, like like in tears, say like like it was it's my American dream 
to know that my kid could become a documentary filmmaker, you know, like some <laughs> kind of like pansy artistic thing that doesn't require your hands or muscles. Like that's the American dream. Like you can go and be soft and I'm happy. <laughs> that's awesome. So are you, are you, are you married now or did you maintain that, that vow, that, that abstinence? Are you still... You know, it's 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 not it's not that I don't look at you know. In, in my case, I know I'm straight. It's like I don't look at you know. I, it's not like I can't look at a woman and go like, oh my god, she's beautiful. Like I I still have those like those reactions. It's not like I've I've transcended those. But it's like I've understood that. And looking back at like past relationships, I'm the worst person to have a relationship with. Like, and I realize that I suck at it, and I'm happy not having them. <laughs> and I realize like everybody's got their own path. And it's like the most important thing in life is finding it. And I was lucky to have found it when I was 19. Mm. And I go like, it's working. I'm happy. It's not about whether I'm free and you're not, whether I've got a mortgage and you don't or vice versa. You know, like I found, you know, what makes me a good person. And I found, you know, a, a lifestyle that allows me to like look at each day as a new day. Um, and I feel enough love, like I'm living in a, in a, in a community of people that I love and, and love me. And so it's like, I don't have that absence of community. And so it's just like, you know, I'm, I feel grateful for what I have. So how, how long have you been abstaining for? How, how many years now? 19. Wow. You know, 19 years old and you, I, it, 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 it does it, it get easier? Oh yeah. Oh God. Thank God. And, and, and I've, I've done all my blood tests and it's like, I still have high testosterone. I still have all these things that are good health. But, you know, in terms of like mental clarity, and this is just me, it's like, I've realized that like, I know how to love myself. I know how to love other people without there being strings attached. Mm. And I know that like from, from, from friends and from like listening to you guys, it's like, obviously, like there are ways to, to achieve unconditional love, you know, through any type of relationship. And I, I feel like I've gotten a sense of that. And that's the only important thing in life, right? It's like if you feel love and you give love. So let's talk about that. It, you know, something we talked about off air before we even got on here, and I didn't know this about you, that you actually listened to the show. You said you've probably listened to about 120 episodes of Mind Pump. One, how did you find us? Two, what drew you to us? And what made you stick around? <laughs> you know, I, I found you through suggestions on my podcast app on Overcast. And Number one, it's like the sheer amount of content. And this is what I, this is the problem I have with most podcasts that I like. It's like, it's one episode a week or it's like two episodes and that's it. And it's not like a radio program where you can just listen to banter. And so frankly, like I enjoy the first half an hour of every single episode. (laughs) At the same time, I love how you kind of tee it up by like talking about like what we're going to talk about in the next half an hour to say like, well, I only have a half, I only have a 40 minute drive. So let me like fast forward to like minute 60 and get to like the real content. Um, even recently, it's like even the, the, the science aspect and the spirituality aspect, like the clarity you bring, like, you know, you're, you're kind of like debunking of keto. Um, even this week, it's like, I listened to that episode twice. And uh, again, it's like, I listened to it because like there was keto in the title, just like you guys said. Um, <laughs> that was the plan. <laughs> but the, the idea of looking at mental preparation, at science, at physical preparation, understanding that each individual listener is going to be unique and on their own journey. But it's like, if they look at the journey as something transformative rather than like a mindset of being so attached to a goal mm. that if they realize they're never going to get there, they give up. Like that resonates with the type of work I try to do. And that's like in 3100, 
It's the idea of looking at sports as transformation. And once you realize that it's transformative, it becomes religious. It becomes something that you need to do to become a better person, both as a physical being and as a spiritual being. And I think ultimately it makes you a better person in the lives that, that you're a part of. That's, awesome. That's a hundred. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And um, I did not anticipate this to be as inspirational uh, as it as it has been. Mm-hmm. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I think you're an awesome human being. But you yeah. guys, you guys are like modest heroes of mine. Like I, you guys occupy more of my life than probably most people. So it's great to finally meet you guys in person. <laughs> I feel like awesome. we're really close friends now. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. It's an absolute yeah, it's honor. Thank, Thank you. Guys. Great time, man. Thank you for listening to Mind Pump. If your goal is to build and shape your body, dramatically improve your health and energy, and maximize your overall performance, check out our discounted RGB Super Bundle at mindpumpmedia.com. The RGB Super Bundle includes MAPS Anabolic, MAPS Performance, and MAPS Aesthetic. Nine months of phased expert exercise programming designed by Sal, Adam, and Justin to systematically transform the way your body looks, feels, and performs. With detailed workout blueprints and over 200 videos, the RGB Super Bundle is like having Sal, Adam, and Justin as your own personal trainers, but at a fraction of the price. The RGB Super Bundle has a full 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can get it now plus other valuable free resources at mindpumpmedia.com. If you enjoy this show, please share the love by leaving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and by introducing Mind Pump to your friends and family. We thank you for your support, and until next time, this is Mind Pump.